Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. And what are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about using the platform. Ah, I love this one. Use the platform. So, yeah, what do we mean by use the platform? Yeah, it's a sense that I've been hearing a lot in the web development ring. Mm hmm. And web rings? Web rings. Sounds very old school. Sounds like Web 1.0. It only makes me think of Sonic the Hedgehog, to be honest. (laughs) Rings. But yeah, uh, using the platform, it's something we often hear about, but I think it's a bit undefined, and at least it is still to Mm. me. So hopefully I will learn more today. Yeah. So yeah, what do we mean when we say use the platform? Like, first of all, what is considered to be the platform? Right, right. Good, good question. I mean, the obvious answer is the web. And I think that answer might be surprisingly deep because... It, so the deep web. The deep web. Because we, the web is, in a way, something that we move away from more and more as, as we've been replacing some of the functionality in the web with JavaScript. And I think there's more of a move back to, rather than replacing web functionality and reinventing the wheel, what if we enhance functionality but leverage the existing functionality where possible? And it turns out there's some, there are a lot of benefits to that approach. And, you know, I've got to say, like, I've been, my development career started out doing Rails development. And I think I thought of myself a lot more in those days as somebody who, I I thought of myself more as a back-end developer in those days. Because, you know, you work with like data modeling and you work with building APIs and business logic and things like that. That's how I tended to think of myself because I'm like, that's that's this nice, clean stuff, the sort of front end part. Making things look, li- uh, look good. Yeah, like I never, that was never my forte and it was never the part that felt exciting to me. The part that felt exciting was let's, do test-driven development and write really well-tested business logic and iterate on it quickly and things like that. And the the web part almost felt like an afterthought in my early career. Then when I was doing more front-end development and Elm development, I thought of myself more maybe like a front-end developer. And actually Elm Pages has really made me think of myself a lot more as a web developer. And that's been a cool shift. I think to a certain extent, just building a framework, I've had to think about these kind of web uh, primitives that were, were given and how to use them as much as possible and, and think more deeply about what they mean. And even when I'm not building with Elm pages, it makes me think more about how to leverage those primitives. So there's one thing that I want to clear up first. So you mentioned that the platform is the web. The way that I think I understood it was, it was more meant like the platform is the browser. Or the different browsers, mm. because that right. is the, the the web is a thing. Sure, that I would actually have a hard time defining. If you want to do that, go ahead. But it's the browsers that give you a lot of things for free, or that do a lot of things for you, which I think is the point of the sentence slogan. This is very good distinction. So let's break that down. So the the browser versus the web. So. If we're just looking at the browser, what is the browser doing when it displays a page? It it's making an HTTP request, and that's part of the web. And what if what if it gets a 404, or if it does a redirect, or if it chooses to cache a certain resource, 
or if it preloads a resource, or if it it's doing that with a CDN or a, a web server, it's taking these headers that the web server is sending back. So there, so there are two two sides of that. There's the the server side and the front front end side. That's one piece, and those are both part of web standards because the server is communicating with the browser through these web standards. So that's one piece. And another piece is that, you know, I mean, you can interact with APIs through different services. You know, you could have a voice assistant, for example, consuming your site. So it's not strictly only browsers. Um, so I guess that's why I look at it as a little bit broader than just the browser. But But the browser is a huge part of that and is very emblematic of the whole use the platform and, and these web standards. So is the platform more the web standards? Yes. Use the web standards should be the episode's title? Yes, I think that, I think you put your finger on it. It is, it is exactly web standards, yes. So I've been thinking about this more broadly and trying to think like, what, why does it matter? And to me, I think the bottom line is that it matters because conventions matter. And so, you know, web standards, conventions, they're sort of uh, related. Web, web standards matter because we build tools on these conventions and standards. Do you actually know the difference between a convention and standards? Uh, I guess one is form, to me. formally written down. I mean, web standards are a thing. Like you have these RFCs and you go and read them and it says exactly, you know, what the handshake should be for opening up a socket connection and it says what what is valid html and what's invalid html which html elements need a closing tag and which ones should not have a closing tag and strange things like this right and uh, sometimes conventions can even break those standards and then the standards have to formalize those conventions so the conventions are the um non-written ones. Standards are the written ones and conventions are what people do in practice, I guess. Yes. I, I would hopefully say, they're the same. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the web is all about those conventions. And uh, I mean, it's this strange thing where you're, you're building for, for multiple consumers. And I guess that's one of the really interesting things about building for this nebulous platform, right? Because it's not just a browser. It could be a voice assistant. It could be a device that doesn't exist yet. It could be somebody using a screen reader. It could be curl. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's all web. That's all the platform. So, so yeah, conventions matter. And another, another thing that I think matters with conventions is just what users expect. If you go to a website, there are certain things you expect in the experience. You expect to click a link and it takes you to a page. You click the back button and it takes you to the page you were at before. And you can you can break that convention. And to do that, in a, in a certain sense, you're going against the grain to do that. But there are plenty of ways to do that type of thing where you break users' expectations. Mm -hmm. What I feel is, my understanding is that we are talking about this more and more because people have been accustomed to not using the platform or, or they have been breaking those standards and conventions more and more by doing things by hand. Is that your impression as well? Yes, I, th I think you're right. I think that, you know, the, the web was basically built with this idea of like structured markup and links. It's basically the web. That's why it's called the web, I think, is because you have these things interweaved in a web, tangled up web, right? 
links are this fundamental tool of the web. And, and it was like a document delivery platform. And, you know, and then you get these things added on, you get CSS to style the web. That vision evolves. I think it was originally sort of thought of as something that could be users could bring their own CSS and that isn't really a common practice. Yeah. Because who wants to to use an application after starting it themselves, right? Right. I, I, I don't want to go to to YouTube and then have a, a very ugly page and therefore I have to start it myself and <laughs> Right. Like no, that sounds like that sounds terrible. Like it, it's nice to be able to customize things, but yeah. And I guess, I mean, to a certain extent, that speaks to how things have evolved. Because in the early days, when you have a bunch of headings and paragraphs and bold and whatever, flash, whatever those fun early Web 1.0 tags were that we've lost nowadays, uh, the blink tags and stuff. In those simpler times, you know, you have these um, primitives that that you use and you you style them. But now right. it's so much more sophisticated what we express. And the semantic HTML we have and the conventions vary so much. Like it, it, It's kind of like viewing a Git diffs in GitHub. Like if someone uses a tab, then you can choose how to render it as two spaces, four right, spaces, right. eight spaces if you're weird. Yes. Yeah, things were simpler then. There were there was less expressive power. There was less to express. People weren't really building apps. They were basically sharing documents. They were sharing articles and and tables of contents and things like that. Yeah, in that sense, it made it made a lot of sense that you style your browser the way you want. So it's basically right. yeah, I'm not styling this website. I'm styling whatever the documents I'm getting. Exactly. Which you can still do to some extent with uh, the browser settings, but exactly. CSS has taken a life on its own. Right. You could say, this is my preferred font. This is my preferred font size. This is how big I like heading ones and heading twos. Whereas like the, the concept of 10 nested divs would, would have seemed incomprehensible in the early days of Web 1.0. And nowadays it's, it's like, yeah, that, I'm not surprised. That makes sense. <laughs> Only 10? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so the vision of, of what the web does has evolved. And I think that the platform, you know, there's there's this sort of back and forth where people are always pushing the boundaries of what the platform can do. And then it catches up and you try to standardize that and you cr- try to provide new primitives to build in these new features that were at the bleeding edge before. You know, I mean, jQuery is the classic example that you're starting to add dynamism into web pages and you have, you know, all these utilities to go find an element on the page and toggle a class on it and things like that. And then these patterns emerge and you say, you know, this seems to be a generally agreed upon convention of how people are building websites. Seems to be a good idea. Um, seems to be a good practice that we have some common patterns for now. Let's build that into the platform. So it's always going back and forth. And I think what's happened is that, you know, single page apps and JavaScript heavy applications, we were pushing the boundary with what we could do with interactive front end applications. And so we sort of strayed away from the web platform a little because it couldn't, I mean, you know, I remember the early days when you couldn't, you couldn't do push navigation and you had to use 
hash hashes in your URLs because the browser would ignore those. Otherwise, the browser would try to actually do a quote unquote real page load to load a document when you change the URL. That was like a built-in assumption and new web standards and, and primitives had to be built into the platform to support that. So it makes sense. Like we've been ahead of what the platform could do. But then when the platform catches up and it says, okay, I've solved these problems, I've accounted for these use cases, then we have to say, okay, now we can start using the platform again. And I, I think that that's sort of where we've found ourselves at this point in time. Yeah, but you still need to support IE 8 or 6. <laughs> right. Well, that is another interesting thing about our time, isn't it? Is that, I mean, I think this year, IE 11 will officially drop support permanently once and for all. I thought it was already the case, but yeah, soon or let's check it. Internet Explorer 11 is going end of life on June 15th, 2022, meaning that for most Windows versions, using Internet Explorer won't be an option anymore. So yeah, I, I feel like there was maybe like a soft end of life date and now that's the hard deadline. I don't know exactly what the nuances of that were, but you know, enough people have been able to make the case that, I mean... For sure, IE11 is no longer support, like getting active development, even for, I think, security issues. They don't get active development, I believe. But either way, it's fully end of life in June this year. So that's a big deal as far as using the platform goes, because we can assume that we have some of these built-in platform features, more of them. Now, that's, of course, a gray area to some extent, because you do have different devices that might be running an old version of iOS or an old Chromebook or things like that that can't update to. So it's not as simple as Evergreen, but still, it's yes. a big step. So I'm curious about one thing. When we talk about the platform, we mean the web, the browser and web standards. Do you know of any other platform? like, Or is web standards just a, a weird uh, entity where we have something that we can rely on? For instance, if you develop games in Unity, can you call that a platform? I think you can. I think you can call to, to, to the same extent. JS a platform. It's a good question. I mean, you know, you could call iOS a mobile platform. There's a platform for development. There are certain standards and APIs. You know, it, I mean, it is interesting because the web platform is, it's this interesting space where you, you put things out there and many different devices in many different modalities can consume it. And you don't know what version, like somebody could navigate to a website from an Xbox or a watch or a screen reader or a voice assistant, or they could be scraping your page. They could be, you know, viewing, viewing it through a Twitter social image preview, scraping the markup. There are so many different ways that it could be consumed and not to mention SpiderMonkey versus WebKit, etc. And you have to build it in a way where you can support all those. And hopefully that doesn't involve too many vendor prefixes and CSS and that sort of thing. Because, well, that's, that's I mean, I, those were, I think that browser vendors realized that that was a bad direction because people ended up permanently relying on on those and building as if they're targeting different platforms. Yeah. 
Which is not what you want. Right. You want to move towards a single platform and try to build a unified experience as much as possible. You want to build re responsive websites. So in that sense, it is unique. Of course, you can build an iOS application for different sizes of device and somebody could run it on an M1 Mac or whatever. But yeah, the, I mean, the web is it's probably the largest and most diverse platform. I think that's fair to say. Probably. Especially since I, I have trouble finding other platforms. But yeah. <laughs> and and especially because, you know, I mean if you're making HTTP requests, are you using the web platform? Kind of. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so like conventions matter. Conventions matter for user experience, you know, from from somebody who doesn't use a computer very much, but they sort of have their workflow and they expect the back button to do something and you know, or they expect to bookmark something and be able to get to the same place. Conventions matter for, for those types of users. Conventions matter for power users. Conventions matter for users who, you know, ha have certain constraints in how they use the device. Like, you know, if they have restricted motion and they uh, need to use keyboard-only navigation, or if you're a power user and use keyboard-only navigation. These are all Places where conventions really matter. And if, if these focus outlines that you get aren't showing up to show you what, where your focus is, that breaks their expectations. And that might break the way that they're expecting to use the platform. So, so when you go and you pave a new path that doesn't follow the platform, then I, to me, the bottom line is you take responsibility for making sure that all these different use cases are handled. And that's a big responsibility. And if you can avoid it, it's better to just rely on the platform to do those things because it gives you a lot. And it's not just what the platform does now. It's what the platform will do in the future too. If, if, if it consumes it in a particular way in the future, you have to keep up with that and make sure that, that your application supports that. Right. So it's, but isn't using the platform premature abstraction or optimization in that case? I don't see it that way. I see it as, I mean, because it actually helps you build things more simply by leveraging the platform. Like, I think one of the classic examples is imagine that you didn't have any links on your page. And okay, so now you have something in your model that says what page you're on. Let's not call it a URL. Let's just call it a page because we're not using the platform. So we don't have a concept of URLs. And um, we have unclick handlers for these things. Let's maybe we underline, underline them or underline them on hover or something like that because that's, you know, looks like something you could click to, but it's not an anchor tag. Maybe it's a div and it has an unclick. You click it, it changes the page content you're viewing. Well, in an Elm application, that's a lot harder. That's a lot more work, right? Yeah. I, I'm starting to realize like you would have the same issue if you did a desktop application. Like you have to redo all of those manually. And which is, I, I'm guessing, part of the reason why frameworks or platforms, I guess, like Electron mm -hmm. had so much um, uses. Right. Because you get, you get a lot of those things for yes. free. Right. The, the downside is that. Uh, it's running a very performance-heavy thing under the hood, but you get a lot of things for free as a developer, and the experience for the user is much nicer. Right. 
Electron is such an interesting topic for, for use the platform because in a certain sense, it's saying, hey, let's just, we've got this platform, let's just bundle it up for you. In another sense, it's completely eschewing the platform because it's saying, well, we have progressive web apps, but let's just like do a fork of Chrome that you can install and bundle with every application you build and it can consume all this memory. And there are pros and cons. In in one sense, it is embracing the platform. In another sense, it is um, really not embracing this primitive of progressive web apps. So I definitely have mixed feelings about that one. I, I wish that we just had more device vendors embracing progressive web apps. Of course, that's not going to handle every single use case. There are definitely reasons why a native application is is the right tool for for certain use cases but so how would a progressive web app replace a desktop application just to clarify well if it's if it's an electron application that doesn't i mean there are so many things that the platform of progressive web applications provides push notifications of course it's varying support in different platforms uh but you know access to sensors device sensors and being able to sync data when you come online being able to handle offline support so like having cached resources and so you get those with progressive web apps but not with electron is that what right. you're saying well so like when you think about when i think about the web platform the one of the things that's really unique about it is you, you go to a url mm -hmm. and it loads an application It streams in an application to your device. Whatever device you're on, you can probably stream a, a web application to it, which is pretty amazing. That's yeah, not how Electron works. Yeah, because it also streams it in a very lightweight uh, Exactly. Manner. Because you only download like HTML, CSS, some JavaScript, in which, which can be very big still, but a lot less than shipping a native desktop, uh, desktop app which exactly. you need to install, which you need to go through install wizard, maybe even. Exactly, exactly. So the, the application delivery mechanism is amazing. And also, if you want to share, you know, if, if, um, if I'm going to a concert and I say, you know, somebody says, oh, you're going to this concert, how do I find out more? I can't copy an Electron <laughs> app and send it to them, but I can copy a, the URL I'm on, on my browser or on my phone, hit share, send it to them a message, and now they're looking at the same thing I was looking at on whatever device they happen to be at, right? That's the web platform, and it's it's cool. And now, you know, if that's a conference website or a news source or something where maybe you hop on a plane and you want to read more about it and you want it to still be there, right? If you load that conference program on your phone and it's a progressive web app, then you're looking at the conference program It loads the page as soon as it can, but then it starts installing this service worker in the background and it starts caching these assets so it has the, the program available for you on your device offline. And then you go into airplane mode and you look at the program and it's there. An Electron application can't do that, right? So it's just um, it's a streaming application and document platform, which is really amazing. That's, and I think that we should embrace that more. Because it's a really unique thing about the web. And now it doesn't feel like it's the web because it's a, it's for desktop. And it's, yeah, but yeah. Right. 
Because under the, under the hood, it's using a browser. That's why it's working the way it is, right? Is it actually? Uh, or well, th that is the interesting thing, isn't it? Like, what does it mean to use the platform? But it is this set of standards and conventions that we can build on top of, and something that's not a browser could hook into those same standards and say, "Oh, there's a concept of a service worker. I'm going to use that, even though I'm not a web browser." I don't know what it's a voice assistant and you go on the airplane and you interact with your voice assistant and you say, Hey, voice assistant, what's in the conference tomorrow? What's the, what's the keynote conference tomorrow morning? And it can tell you maybe, right. And it could mm -hmm. use the service worker to do that or whatever, even though it's not a browser. So that's the weird thing about the platform is you're kind of building according to these standards and conventions so that different devices and tools can can leverage those things to give you these different experiences. It, it kind of sounds like write once, run anywhere. Yeah. From Java. <laughs> well in a sense it, there there are common elements there. And I mean Java failed to to do that, right? Java applets were a thing and it didn't did, didn't really take off. I think the web is just a very powerful idea and of course it's imperfect. It's it's trying to build this very ambitious and like huge in scope thing that's constantly evolving in a time when technology is changing very quickly and it has to remain backwards compatible. I think given all those constraints, it's actually an amazingly successful platform. Yeah, like it, all the critiques that we can give to any of the browsers, like even Internet Explorer, the old versions, right? like it's still a very complex piece of software for good and bad. It's, 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 they're all amazing technologies. Yes, and we should probably not forget that. I I think so. I think I think the more we can embrace it, the better. Especially nowadays, you know, there's a really interesting article. I'll link I'll link to it by Alex Russell, who he spearheaded a lot of the um, progressive web app stuff, and is just you know has a lot of really interesting thoughts about the web in really broad terms. He he's really worth following and he um he has an article where he talks about this sort of back and forth of the of platforms uh providing features and then not being at parity with the performance and and feature set of native platforms but then it tries to then it catches up so you you've got this constant back and forth where the web platform is never going to be ahead of these native platforms but you want to catch up over time so, so I think, um, so use the platform. Why does it matter? I, I think at the end of the day, it's really about conventions. And when I think about... So, so the reason why it matters is because you get a lot of things for free. And all those things that are for free are things that people expect because they have been there in other websites and most of the websites actually, right? Yes. So when I try to break it down, I, I kind of thought of a few areas where, when I, I think this makes a tangible difference. A pretty obvious one is accessibility. If you, if you try to reinvent the wheel rather than embracing the platform, then, then accessibility devices, you know, screen readers or people navigating websites in, in ways that aren't the same as how you navigate them are not going to be able to do so easily or at all. For example, if you if you don't use H1, H2s, or if you have forms that aren't actually forms, they're just hanging inputs floating in, in the ether, 
or if you don't use actual links, but you use divs with on-click handlers, those have serious accessibility implications. So accessibility is one area. I almost feel like it's a bit weird for accessibility because you have so semantic HTML that gives you a lot of things for free for screen readers and for um, and for interaction. And at the same time, you also have APIs through Aria. Right. Yes. To add the things that you didn't add through through non-semantic HTML. So you you can make a a div with a unclick event handler, and then say that its role is a button. Right. So it, it, it kind link. of feels like yeah. you have two ways of yes. doing it. One is a lot more complex than the other, definitely. But it is. It, I I don't know why they both things exist. I'm, I'm sure they valid use cases where you can't use Aria or where Aria adds more information, but. Right. Yeah. And, and see, that's, that's sort of where I've personally arrived with all of this is the web is massive. We can't all be experts about every single detail, but there are some basic rules of thumb that we can follow that are going to make our lives easier and the lives of our users easier. And so do I know every single detail of ARIA accessibilities and screen reader experiences and and the cases when it makes sense to use ARIA versus the cases when something else makes sense? No, uh, I'm not an expert. And there's a lot I don't know about that. But I know that if I can use a link, I may as well. And I know that if I can use a form, I may as well. I also know that if I, um, if I pull up a, you know, if I pull up VoiceOver, the built-in screen reader on Mac, go to a web page, I know that one of the main tools that screen reader users on Mac use is the the rotary, which is something you go and you you're in screen reader, um, you can do control option U, and it pulls up this rotary, and you can hit the the arrow keys to navigate left to right between these different um, panes of like the hierarchy of H1, H2, H3s. You can see links, you can see forms you can see lists, you can see tables. So these things matter to, to screen reader users. And knowing that is gets me a lot of the way there to a baseline of, of using the platform and building more accessibility-friendly experiences. It doesn't get me all the way there, and I have to rely on a lot of Googling and knowledge from other people and things like that to, to get the last 10%. But that gets me 90% of the way there, just knowing that if a screen reader user is looking at a site, and if they're looking at a table, it will tell them which column they're under and which row they're under. And it, can re- and it knows what the name of the column is. And it can say you're in row three of the country column, right? And if I'm looking at a link, if I say click here, and the link says click here, then if you pull up the rotary and you look at the links on the page, then it will read out link, click here, link, click here, link, click here, as opposed to link, buy your copy of my book title or whatever, right? Those are just like, that's not that much knowledge. And I think that as people building for the web platform, we can get so much mileage from knowing 
Just a few things like that. And also just saying, you know what? I know that if I'm making it overly complex and relying on building these things myself rather than using the built-in semantic HTML and things like that, if you just know, okay, sometimes I need to do that. Sometimes it's the right choice to do that, but it should probably be my last resort. And I shouldn't make that choice lightly. I should make that choice knowing that that's the harder path because now I have to do a lot of research. If I just put a link on a web page, I don't have to do much research to know if that's a good idea. But if I don't do a link and I'm navigating to a different page through that interaction, I should probably think through the implications of that. Yeah. So, so if you redo your, your link through a div, you probably need to implement the fact that you open and you, you, you change the URL when you click on it. Yep. You have to re-implement opening in a new tab. If you do control or command exactly. click, you have to have a, a, the color change when you hover it. You have to make it selectable with the keyboard, tabable. Exa exactly. You have to make it keyboard focusable. And plenty of other things. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Which the, the deeper you go, the harder it seems to, to do manually, right? Exactly. You have to, uh, on enter, you have to engage the link and on space, you have to scroll the page. Whereas with buttons, if you hit space, you click the link, you click the button. And also if you right click the link, then you should be able to copy whatever um, URL it is linking to. Exactly. exactly. I have no clue how to, yep. how, how to do myself. Like it, I don't even know if that's possible. Exactly. You, at, at the end of the day, you really should just use the link. Also, if you hover over it, in the bottom left of most browsers, it will show the URL so you know what you're going to, which actually I yes. use that feature a lot. I, I just love when it says JavaScript colon yeah, exactly. uh, void. <laughs> <laughs> this might seem like a bit of a straw man, like, come on, divs instead of links, but actually it's extremely common. Like it happens so much on Twitter that I'll try to navigate somewhere. And I, I'm a new tab opener. That's just what I do. <laughs> I, uh, I want to make sure that I don't miss any good context from something I'm reading and I go back to it. I open a bunch of tabs. I'm sure I'm not the only one out there. And so you notice when, you, when you're middle clicking to, to open a new tab, that's another thing that happens when you yeah, click on links. Middle click as well. <laughs> middle click a link. Does it open a new tab or does it just do nothing? And it's so annoying when it actually simply does the... Uh, the normal the, navigation. The normal. Oh, that's the worst. That's even worse. That's yeah. even worse than doing nothing. If it does nothing, at least you can mentally prepare for what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. But if you if it just follows a link, then you're like, no, I lost all my progress. Right. And this is actually extremely common. So this is not a straw man. This is, um, I mean, very large sites use this all the time. This like this happens to me on Twitter. Quite frequently, so it matters and it and it happens. So so yeah. So the key areas that I think about for why it matters: accessibility. How many more are they? <laughs> I came up with four. Okay, but let's go to number two. Let me know if you think of any others. Performance, user experience, and simplicity. So performance. Um, there are certain things that the platform can do if you use CSS. Platforms can make assumptions about how you use CSS, and they can optimize for that. If you 
you know, if you use uh, Im like image source sets, then the platform can give you performance benefits for that, for example. But it could also give you a better user experience. So there, there are many reasons to use the platform, right? But performance is one key thing. Yeah, I, I guess also you, you ship a lot less code if you use the standard behavior. If you try to re-implement the, the link, like we just mentioned, that's a lot of code that you're going to send over uh, over the wire, which you probably, which would be exactly one character <laughs> uh, otherwise. Right. Yes, that's a great point. Not to mention that it makes your code simpler, right? And, and these things all kind of blend together, you know, like same with user experience, right? It's going to make a better user experience. Um, there, and there are so many ways it can affect user experience, right? Like using, you know, if you, if you have flashes of unstyled content, you can, you can, you know, if you're using the platform, you can try to use media queries to make things responsive. You know, I've ranted about how I don't like managing responsiveness through my model in Elm because number one, I have to keep track of it in my model. And number two, I have a flash of unresponsive content because uh, but if it was a media query, then uh, it's not stateful and the platform can optimize for it and it's going to lead do, to a better user experience, I think. Yeah, I do feel a bit conflicted with the media queries. So, but maybe it's just uh, I have a gap in my understanding. So if you want to do a mobile friendly uh, application website, what tends to happen or what, what I tend to see is people render a lot of HTML and then depending on the media query or the, depending on the size, they have their media query disable or hide elements. And in, but that means that all the uh, elements are rendered, uh, not rendered, are present in the DOM, right? So you have hundreds of DOM nodes that are not used, but that are still lying in memory and affecting the browser's computations. So I feel like performance-wise, that is probably not great. Um, if you do it in Elm, then also it goes through the virtual DOM uh, diffing. So I, I don't know what the performance implication of this is. I'm guessing it's not that bad because people tend to use it, but I, I, I'd love your opinion on that. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I mean if you have hundreds of, of elements that are hidden based on the responsive you know, view you're in. Well, maybe it's you have a, a table that you show by default uh, on desktop yeah. sizes. Mm -hmm. And in mm -hmm. in mobile, you have to click uh, somewhere for that table to show up. I see. I see. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I would say, like, I don't know. If it's just a table that you can't, that you're going to see in the desktop experience, but on mobile, you have to click something to show it. I don't know. My my first inclination would be well, if if the number of HTML nodes is not a problem on desktop, probably not going to be a problem on mobile either. With some of them being hidden, and it's probably not going to be the performance bottleneck. So, I don't know. I I I wouldn't think of that as a concern unless I have a specific reason to. I would be thinking more about if a user is using this on desktop or on mobile. If they have to go to mobile.mysite.com versus mysite.com, am I serving them two completely different, unfamiliar experiences? That would be my bigger concern, 
And I would feel more confident if I'm using a few media queries to have something be, you know, a row versus a column based on the platform, a few things like that. I would be more confident about delivering a similar familiar experience if I was doing that approach than if I was serving up two essentially different sites. Definitely. Yeah. Or if I had a lot of logic in my application code for that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if what I mentioned is a performance bottleneck. I'm guessing it isn't. What you do get from using media queries is probably like, like a lot of less, in Elm at least, fun, uh, function calls for updates. So you get a lot of a lot less cycles if you like listen to the size of the window. So that's something that will be a lot faster and a lot more responsive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, see, that's the thing is I don't really, um, I don't particularly feel confident about the performance if I'm if I'm having an on hover highlight for a button that comes from Elm. Like, you know. I don't trust myself to build that experience in a reliable way. I feel like it's probably going to be janky in some way or not performant. It's just uh, like if I can do it with CSS, I would prefer that. Something I've been mulling over recently and I haven't come to a conclusion yet, it's sort of a forming or exploring idea in my mind right now, is um, CSS and JS or CSS and Elm versus CSS and I do wonder, should use the platform push me towards more of a vanilla CSS experience? And of, of course, there are pros and cons. We love our type safety in Elm, like Elm Tailwind modules, for example. It's really nice being able to just use breakpoints and things defined with Elm CSS and then add your own custom Elm CSS styles and intermingle those. It's a very nice developer experience. It's I think it's a pretty good user experience. I haven't really noticed performance issues. Uh, although it does increase your your bundle size of your JavaScript, your compiled Elm. And per byte, I think that you're going to have more of a performance burden per byte of JavaScript code compared to per byte of CSS in general. Um, yeah, I probably agree with that CSS will be lighter. As for doing it, doing CSS inline versus using CSS files, both are supported by the browser, so both are using the platform, right? Yes and no. I mean, putting everything into JavaScript in a certain sense is not embracing the platform, right? Because the platform is like, here's, a, you can have style sheets, you can have, like, JavaScript is a tool for enhancing experiences, not creating experiences from scratch, right? That's, I think that's the, that's the gist of my take on use the platform. And but, but JavaScript is a web standard. <laughs> right, right. Therefore, anything yeah. I write in JavaScript is using the platform. Yeah, yes, right, exactly. Right. <laughs> you found the loophole. Yeah, yeah. Like if I open an HTML tag and I don't close it, but the browser supports it, <laughs> I'm using the platform. Right, right. Right. <laughs> if you right, well, and actually, this does get to an interesting case of use the platform. So there are parts of the platform that are not necessarily going to give you the most customizability or allow you to create rich user experiences. For example, is Alert part of the platform? Technically, although they're actually trying to remove it, but um, hmm. 
because for now then <laughs> yeah <laughs> apparently it's like used by scammers to make it look like you're getting an official system notification when they like screen share with people uh. i think that's the reason they're trying to remove it it, it also gives a wonderful uh, user experience <laughs> precisely right well, so it, that, in some cases it does make sense i, I guess but pretty rarely right so that's yeah. one where you probably want to throw it out and say the platform doesn't really give me a good building block in this case so i'm going to need to create my own right and now you could imagine a world where that's different but that's the platform primitive that we're given so uh to a certain extent you you have to you can't just blindly use the platform it does take a little bit of experimentation and experience to figure out which parts of the platform are going to provide good experiences and are going to be able to give you the user experience you want to try to build. Like, you know, like alerts, don't alerts like block the main thread and strange things like that too. So I probably does. Yeah. I think they might think about it. Yeah. So it's pretty odd. It's, it's just, um, somehow it's just this thing that exists in the platform really as a debugging tool and nothing more. And it shouldn't be used, shouldn't be presented to users. You could imagine a world where that is the best practice. The, we have an alert primitive in the platform that gives us a really nice way to do that. Or, it, or a, you have to enable a, a flag in your browser to enable the alert feature, like in mm-hmm. debugging mode. Just like with Elm, right. you have a debug.to-do and debug.log only for development purposes. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Actually, mobile phones, or at least uh, Android, um, has a... You have to do something to get it into like developer modes, something quite th- that you wouldn't find on your own, I think. Yeah. Um, I think you have to go to settings and go to about and press it like 10 times or something. Oh, okay. Interesting. It's, it was something like that last time, I, as far as I can remember. And then does it let you show alerts <laughs> or does it by default? I wonder. I don't know. I haven't tried it enough. <laughs> but that is like the, the web platform is this massive you know hodgepodge and everything is backwards compatible and so sometimes you know early days of the web when javascript was you know just emerging it you throw it in there you don't give much thought to the implications of it and then you can't really you can't really change it because it has to say backwards compatible forever ish and so <laughs> except for alerts like we maintain everything backwards compatible <laughs> Except alerts, because no one likes them. Exactly. Yeah. Which, in a way, makes sense. Like, if no one likes something, not even the users, then, yeah, maybe you want to break the website. It's, yeah, it's a weird line. I think the people who, who run CodePen and Code Sandbox and these tools like it because people use it a lot there when they're learning to yeah. code. <laughs> so like they're how, happy about that. How will we test uh, cross-site uh, scripting injections? Right. We have to do three alerts. <laughs> it is actually quite useful to, to test that. But mm, Interesting. Yeah, so you've got to know the rough edges. You have to, you know, I mean, the, it's not easy being a web developer, you know. There, there's a lot of knowledge that you need. But hopefully having certain rules of thumb makes it easier. And I, I'm going to go ahead and say that, like, Links are a very important part of the web. I'm also going to put a stake in in the ground and say that forms are an important part of the web and one that 
in the front end space we've forgotten about and in the Elm world I think we've forgotten about? Yes. Let's talk about forms. Let's talk about forms. Let's talk about forms. Form over function. What? (laughs) Instead of (laughs) defining a JavaScript function, you should just write a form. It was a bad pun. I had to get one out there. But you didn't say no pun intended. That's true. Well, you would have seen right through it. (laughs) No, because I didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, so I'm one of those people who don't use forms when I probably should. And very likely because I misunderstand them. It's poor form you're in. That one I got. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the way I learned forms back in the day when I started when I studied computer science and the basics of uh, web applications, you have a form and you have a submit action mm-hmm. or an action, which is usually submitting something to a web server, making a post request, uh, and sending the data from the form. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be useful for static websites, like ju- just H- plain HTML slash CSS. But I don't mm-hmm. don't see how it applies for when you want more interaction and when you want to do something else than submitting a uh, make, making a, a post request to something else. So I feel like I missed something somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and and to a certain extent, I think this is again like like we were talking about when when you just sort of throw away the platform because it doesn't do what you need it to and then you build it from scratch because you want to build client validation and things like that and it doesn't support it. I I think we're getting back to saying, okay, actually maybe we can use forms a little bit more instead of throwing them away. But even if let's say that let's say that your submit actions and those things just are disabled, they don't work, they don't do anything. Still, if you have a form wrapping your input elements, screen readers care about that. Yeah. Also, you know what else cares about that? Keyboard. Keyboard. You go, you're in the last field of the form, you hit enter, and it's going to do the on submit action. Wait, only on the last one? Well, that's when I would do it because I'm done with the form and I'm ready to submit it. But oh, yeah, yeah. Where, wherever you are in the form. Right? So these are... These are relevant things, whether or not you're handling the on submit with JavaScript. So I think um, that's that's the first point. Also, like if you embrace some of these things. Now, ag- again, we were talking about the you know rough edges or things that aren't quite usable and use the platform. Wait, j- just to clarify, so you can just use unsubmit uh, HTML events yes. unsubmit, just like you would do. With any other form, exactly. Oh, any other elements, and it wouldn't necessarily want to make an action to send it, something to. Exactly, it's going to okay. prevent default on that when you, you know, when you put an on submit on the form. But basically, what I'm suggesting to somebody who says, "I don't ever want a real form post to happen, but I want to make an accessible user experience and something that's intuitive for keyboard users and things like that." Mm-hmm. What I'm suggesting is just wrap your input fields in a form, always, and add an on submit handler instead of a button on click, right? Because that button on click isn't going to get triggered if you do on enter. Like, are you going to add an on enter listener on every field? And what yes. else are you missing? There? <laughs> <laughs> 
It happens so often that I'm like filling out forms and, you know, I use some autocomplete to fill in an address or credit card or something. And then it says, invalid, please enter something. And I'm like, really? Really? Like they're on input handler somehow doesn't catch that I entered something with an autofill. But there's so many, I mean, it's just so widespread, right? That um, people are trying to outsmart the platform. They're trying to say, you cannot copy paste into this field. It's like, what? Like you can't copy paste your password into a field. Like, why? Why can't I do that? What if I'm using <laughs> a password manager and that's my workflow for whatever reason? Like I should be able to do that. Or, you know, you can't, You <laughs> like when it says re-enter email address to confirm it, you enter it once, you can paste your email address. The second one, you have to type it manually to be safe. Like, but don't but, tell me yeah. how to live my life. Yeah, I, I feel like I will do a better job by pasting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many things like this, or disabling right click, or just don't do that. It's- the, the the passwords is, I think, my pet peeve. So uh, I'm using a, a Mac at work, and it doesn't have an option to display the password that you typed. Mm-hmm. It, whereas in other platform, at least my personal Linux laptop, you have you usually have a button to to, to show mm. the contents. Mm-hmm. And I found that so annoying because it, especially on a Mac, like I'm not used to the keyboard or I wasn't used okay. to the keyboard back then. Okay. So like, how do I do a backslash? Right. Well, I don't know. You're right. Now everybody knows your password. I didn't say I didn't change it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, I, I'm not... I, like the keyboard doesn't show you what to do, so you have to play with it. Right. But since you cannot see the character oh, that you just typed, you have to try it out. Right. And and when you're trying to log in, like that is like the only field that you can can type things in. So like you're you're really stuck. And it, 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 especially with my with the fact that I've a, usually have a French keyboard, things are not always as you expect. Like for instance, if you play some video games. Sometimes the keyboard just assumes that you're using QWERTY, which I'm not. I'm using an Azerty. And sometimes I just even remap the keyboard to be like, well, no, this is, a, this is QWERTY. Mm-hmm. Especially for like moving a character. I don't know. Uh, key- keyboard keys are annoying sometimes. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. This is why conventions matter. And like anytime you assume that you have a better way to solve a problem than the standard one again the onus is on you to then think through every possible use case whereas if you use the standard if you use a link instead of a javascript on click handler to change the tab you don't have to think through every single thing a link has to do you can just write a link and that's fine and then there's also like actively disabling things that yeah you get for free like i think i mentioned it when we talked about accessibility uh, with Tessa, where we had a, I was working in an application, and we had a form, and the submit button had the focus ring, which uh, my manager mm-hmm. didn't like. They yep. didn't like the styling, and they asked me to actively remove it. Right. And yeah, exactly. with, in, in hindsight, I, I should have just refused because there's good reasons for it to be there. Right. But yeah. Yeah, that should be, that should uh, be raising red flags when. 
when we're trying to disable something, we should at least say, why is this there? Yeah, we should at least understand, like, what is the benefit of this? Which I think we understood, but they still wanted it. Mm. And I, I caved in. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't cave in today, Dylan. I wouldn't today. <laughs> I think I that's a very grown man one. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's quite ubiquitous. So, do you see any? So, do you see any use cases for not using the platform? Well, yeah. I mean, I think again, these sort of knowing through experience, these sort of half-baked parts of the platform, or things that aren't quite ready for prime time, or can't provide the user experiences we need. There are things like that, right? Like the platform provides this alert primitive. You probably shouldn't use it. The platform gives us input type equals date time. I think that's the right uh, name for it. But uh, it's not quite ready for prime time. It's not great, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I mean, it's okay. It's like a good starting point, but you'll probably outgrow it because you want to create a more feature-rich date picker. Yeah, there's also like dropdowns, which are... It, you have the select, but it doesn't like have a filtering, like an in- input that you can type things in. Right. Well, it has some filtering. Uh, well, not not exactly filtering, but it will go to an entry matching what you type. There yes. are certain things that, are, but it's yeah, it is not. There's some th- missing base UI primitives. There absolutely is. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's another great example of a time when you might want to create your own building block. But in those cases, I think my only advice is to not take that lightly and mm-hmm. to to understand that you're now handing off that responsibility from the platform to yourself. So if you can use some sort of community standard, you know, if there's some package that provides something like that or a web component or something that you can install that's community maintained, people can do more testing on it. They can open issues. They can put in pull requests, or at least if it's like a company-wide thing that multiple teams use or something, that's ideal. But just don't take it lightly. That's my only suggestion there. Yeah, because if you want to have most of the same performance gain, uh, user experience, um, and accessibility, you will need to do a lot of work. So if someone did it already for you, then great to check it out because it's Usually, it's slightly not what you want. Right. But if yeah. you do use something that is, that is popular, then I guess it's more likely that that would make it into the standard rather than your non-standard version. Right. Yeah, in Elm, I think we're like a little bit, you know, like if you're trying to find a really nice select component in React, you're going to find a million and a half and... That will be slightly not be what you want. <laughs> probably, but at least you could fork it. And it's probably yes. going to be thinking through a lot of these considerations. Although there are certain ways that React doesn't use the platform that are controversial to like artificial events and things like that. But Synthetic? Synthetic events, that's the word, exactly. But even so, we have a harder time finding these community standard date picker components in Elm. Uh, But I mean, I think a web component can be a really good fit for this kind of thing too, especially because you probably want it to have internal state that you don't care about and you don't want to wire in. Yeah, like I was thinking the same, like even if you rewrite it yourself and maybe you want to do it in Elm, then you probably want to wrap it uh, in a web component so that you don't have to have lots of update cycles 
use it as a stateful component. Right. Yeah. And if you use it as a web component, then you can use it just like any other HTML tag with mm -hmm. regular event handlers. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's simpler to to use it, and you know you can create a robust user experience. So um, I think one of the one of the biggest use the platform kind of I guess things that people miss that I think is pretty low hanging fruit is using URLs. How so? If there's a window, if there's a screen on your application that you can get to that represents like a a meaningful resource you can view, but the back button won't take you back and forth to it, or you can't share a link to it or bookmark it, I think that's probably an opportunity to use the platform and embrace URLs there. I think that's pretty common to just have that be internal application state that you, like, even if you open a modal, that's fine. Open a modal, you can change the URL. And then you hit the back button and you close the modal. And like, that's okay, right? You can do that. Yeah, I'm not sure about a modal, but for the rest, I, I definitely agree. Well, let's say like it's a modal to create a new product listing. Yeah. Then why shouldn't that be slash product slash new? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Why not? Mm -hmm. Like, And then if somebody in their workflow goes and creates products, every morning they go and create a product, they can create a bookmark. Now they can go create a new product. Go straight yep. there. Why not? Uh, I usually go to create issues uh, in GitHub by right. typing slash new. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Right, so that's like the user convention that is going to, like, I think you, you could argue that that is potentially going to make your Elm code cleaner because now your, your model, it's just a routing concern, not a, a model concern where you have to kind of manage this internal state. Am I viewing the new, new form or not? And then you can also have the same loading strategies, whether the person directly went to that URL or if they went through the different button click routes. Right. Exactly. And if you're testing it, you know, you want to manually run through and make sure it's working fine. It's easier for you to test it. It's, it's just, you know, just a good idea. Like there's really not much downside to that. Would you put everything in the URL? Like if someone uh, expands a, an accordion, would you... Like the menu? The yeah. If they toggle the mobile menu? No, I wouldn't put that in. Okay, in there. yeah. But most if a date picker is selected. But it depends, right? Like if you're... Um, if you're on Google Flights and you filter and you you say starting date, end date, and destination and all these things, right? And yeah. you probably want to be able to like copy paste that into a new URL so you can slightly tweak it if you're like me and you're obsessively opening a million tabs or you want to share that link to somebody else and have them see the same thing, right? This is what the web platform gives us. It gives us a way to have shareable resources, which is huge. Like, it's actually really hard to recreate that in different platforms, like native platforms. They try, but the web is very good at that, and we should embrace that. You, you can also use that for, like, pre-filling forms. Yeah. Uh, like, right. if you do slash new for a GitHub issue, maybe there's a query parameter to set the title or the description, and a... A tool could give you like a pre um, pre created uh, URL. You just click on it, and then it's already the name of the issue and the, the, some description. 
Exactly. Or you have like a custom search in your search bar that goes to to use a search because you can tell it what query parameter to fill in and then you can search there from your search bar, for example, right? So, and actually, um, we were talking about forms earlier and the default method for forms is get. You can do a get or a post. Um, often people will think of forms as post, but yes, <laughs> what if you do a it search? Is. If you, by default, if you have a form, so let's say you have like a Elm package search, that could be a form and probably should be a form. And you enter Elm review. And unfortunately, you're not going to see the Elm review package in there <laughs> because you're going to see a million Elm review packages, not JFM angles Elm review. But putting that aside, <laughs> you, you, you can scroll, you can scroll. <laughs> Down. No, e even further. <laughs> yes. No, no, even further. Yes. You're probably going to use the control F search functionality in your browser. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I mean, maybe that's not the best example because you don't necessarily want to go to a new page. But if, the, if there was a separate search page, not an inline search, then you can, the form will by default, when you hit submit, it will add the, the form field as a query parameter. Does it add them or does it replace them? Yeah, so so by default, a form will submit to the current URL. And by default, the HTTP method will be get. You can override that by saying method equals post, but by default, it's a get. So if so, let's say we're on the Elm package homepage and we wrap that input for the search in a, in a form. And then we say input and we give it name equals Q is a common one for query. Mm -hmm. Then if you hit enter and you don't have any on submit handlers or anything, then what it would do is it would load the current page with Q equals whatever you had in your form field. So it will add query parameters for every form field that you had and do a get to the current page and do a full but, but, page navigation. But does it add them to the existing query parameters or does it replace those? Like if you already oh, have an, a query parameter for like places them, yeah, that that's not as nice. Yeah, I I, I, I guess you could encode the the existing parameters already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's good to be aware of these things. And and like in the case of like a package search, like I actually think that would be one really nice thing on the Elm package search site is if it supported if it changed a query parameter as you typed that would not be that difficult for it to manage that. So you could copy it and share the search results with someone. And then you could register it as a custom search engine for, and again, using the platform, right? What is, what is the platform? Is it the browser? Well, it could be the browser navigation bar that's adding in that query parameter, or it could be Alfred or some sort of uh, app launcher that you do a package search and either query the query the results that way or have it load the page when you when you search so but yeah I, yeah I think it's really good to be aware of what a form does if you like what a vanilla form does and hopefully soon we'll, we'll talk about elm pages 3.0 which has this sort of full stack elm story where now this concept of doing a form post actually becomes more meaningful because you can do a real form post and handle it because you can respond from the server in Elm code to a form post. 
um, or to a get request with query parameters. You've entirely spoiled the episode. <laughs> or did I tease it? Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, so this philosophy, you know, like Remix.js has been exploring this idea of progressive enhancement in a really exciting way. That's been a big inspiration for me. And I think I see I see a change occurring in the ethos of the web development community these days. And I think it is more people are starting to look at things more as we're web developers, not front-end developers, JavaScript developers, Elm developers. We're not back-end developers who can make something appear in a web browser. Right, right. Yeah, we have these web standards that give us all these fun things to build with and create great experiences. And and progressive enhancement is sort of like a whole other can of worms that I'm sure we'll talk about a lot when we get to Elm Pages 3.0. But I think there are a lot of benefits. You're using the platform and you can write simpler code. And uh, it's an exciting time to, to be a web developer, I think. Just like back in 1998. <laughs> <laughs> was JavaScript around then? What was When was JavaScript invented? Uh, 95. 95, wow. That's a good number to know. I should commit that to memory. Just like Java. <laughs> well, did we, did we miss anything? I guess there are a few things that we didn't hit on that are on my list. So like, I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about on pages 3.0, but HTTP status codes are part of the platform. I think uh, yeah. embrace those. And I think it's, I mean, it's always frustrating. Like if you've ever consumed an API and had it return a 200, possibly returning HTML with some error in it, even though you sent a header that said content type application JSON, and you assume that that's an okay response, but it's obviously an error, right? Did, did you say GraphQL? Sorry. Well, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you said GraphQL there. I didn't say GraphQL, but that is an interesting case there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these things, the GraphQL in a way does go around certain web standards, you could argue, but. Yeah. But because also it is new in a way. Right. But yeah, right. I, I guess whether it will do good will be in how well it will be adopted by browsers later. I mean, I mean, yeah, I, and there I, are certain standards to it. And yeah, and if like you can, you could have, yeah, it is an interesting question. Like, is it okay to have a 200 response with errors? You could argue if your GraphQL schema is describing the possible error states that you could get and you have to handle those, that's actually a pretty good state of the world. And especially if it's like, this isn't something that fatal error on the server, this is like an expected thing that can happen. And you you get back a user and it's null. Mm -hmm. And that's a known state because it's a nullable field. We didn't find the user. That's, I would argue, a pretty good use of, of web standards, even though it's not returning a 404. In that context, I think that's appropriate. Yeah, you, you still get a few of those. Like you still get 400s. Or if you have a bad request or an invalid GraphQL request. But there's some cases where it should return a 404 or something and it doesn't. And, and to a certain extent, it's like use the platform well to describe what. So in this case, the platform is telling you, did you make a valid GraphQL request? If you did, it's a 200. It's a valid GraphQL request and I didn't find a user. Is it a malformed request? 
in the sense that this is not a valid GraphQL query. So the server will respond and say, malformed request. And so it is using web standards just at a different level. And I think that's appropriate. But there are so many things that I think can improve user experiences and make it simpler to manage code. You know, I think like, I don't know, I think people more and more are, are moving moving towards like using cookies to manage um, sessions because managing those types of things in JavaScript can be really messy and people are embracing that servers exist a little bit more and that these web standards exist. And I think this opens up a whole new avenue of using the platform that using the platform is not just about um, what happens in the browser. It's about the whole picture from request to response. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. So are there any resources we should leave people with before we go? I've got a couple. I only have like MDN. I was actually going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. I like think a Mozilla, a Mozilla Developer Network, great website for any kind of information about the web standards. Really well done. Yes. It is. It's amazing. And it, it's really good at providing the relevant information, not like just bombarding you with every single detail, but giving you little details that you probably should be looking at when you're referring to a particular page. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, look at the MDM docs for forms, form submissions, inputs, HTTP status codes, links, you know, look at these things. It's really, it's really interesting. And the more you're looking at that, uh, that's a good sign that you're probably doing a pretty good job using the platform, I think. It's a, I mean, it's going to make you better at leveraging that. I don't know if it says things like a link should do this when you click it with a middle click or it should show something when you do this. I don't know if it... That's a good question. I'm not sure. So on a related note, there's um there's a page that I find really amusing. Um, and it's actually quite informative. It's htmhell.dev. And it actually does a really good job showing what you were just describing of like what what should a link do when you know when you click it. So it it shows examples of divs that should be anchor tags and things like that. And it mm -hmm. and it walks through why is that a problem for screen reader users, for keyboard users, that sort of thing. It's really neat. Mm -hmm. So that's worth perusing. I'll also leave a link to like some uh, voiceover resource that I think is really useful for just like getting your bearings of what screen reader users see. Yeah. And I also wrote a short post about use the platform. It's in my digital garden. I'll probably keep it updated from time to time with my latest thoughts on, on the topic. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think, uh, I think we've covered the platform pretty well for now. Yep. I hope that even though this wasn't much Elm, it will improve your Elm code. I hope so. Yeah. And hopefully get some uh, get some state out of your Elm code and into the yes. platform. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, Jeroen, until next time. Until next time. <laughs>